You are listening to Climate Now. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm James Lawler. And James, today we're going to explore the idea of biofuels, which just always makes me think of like those those vats of algae that are supposed to produce oil, like sort of science fiction-y kind of out there, very expensive, but possible. Mm. Um, what does it make you think of? I think about corn. I think about corn. Yeah, corn and ethanol, like large amounts of, of uneatable, inedible corn um, making gas additives. That's what comes to mind. What, and that's and that's something that we like already experienced, James. So you holding up your end of the bargain as the reasonable one and me being <laughs> I love that we play to our accounts. <laughs> but there's so much more that we don't know about yet. Um, and in this episode, we are planning to break down the science behind biofuel technology and how biofuels might play a critical role in displacing fossil fuels from the energy market. And to help us do that, we have Dr. Jerry Tuscan with us. Dr. Tuscan has been working with the Oak Ridge National Laboratory since 1990, and they're currently the chief executive officer of the Center for Bioenergy Innovation, as well as the group lead for plant system biology in the Biosciences Division. He also holds a joint appointment at the DOE's Joint Genome Institute in California, where he's on the leadership team for the Plant Sciences Program. So really an expert in all of this who can help us detangle these ideas. Dr. Tuscan, thank you so much for joining us. We're really honored to have you with us for this conversation today. Well, it's my pleasure to be here and um, thanks for asking. So to start things off, we like to ask the same question first to all of our guests. How did you get where you are today in your career? You know, I, I grew up in Arizona and my dad and two brothers and I would go camping a lot. And so I really learned to love the outdoors and I decided as a high school senior to enter into forestry. And so I started my undergraduate education as a forestry major. And when I was a sophomore, I took a genetics class. From that point forward, I decided I was going to practice plant genetics. When I finished my degree, undergraduate degree um, in forestry, and I got a master's in forest genetics from Mississippi State and then a PhD in genetics from Texas A&M. And my first job was at North Dakota State University, where I was in the horticulture department. And then a job came open at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, and I applied thinking I would work for five years, get some experience in a government lab, and go back to academia. But it's been over 20 years now, and I'm still here at ORNL. I've enjoyed it greatly. It's provided me with wonderful opportunities in science. And tell us about your work at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. I'm the director of the Center for Bioenergy Innovation, which is a multi-institutional center. There's 17 partners distributed across the U.S. We're funded by the U.S. Department of Energy, the Office of um, uh, Biological and Environmental Research. And we're one of the four bioenergy research centers in the U.S. And our charge or our mission is to develop alternative fuels to displace petroleum-based liquid transportation fuels. And there's about 265 scientists in the center here at ORNL, distributed at our partner institutions as well. And we cover everything from plant sciences to microbial genetics to techno-economic analyses. So let's start off with the basics, the very basics. Can you define what a biofuel is for us? Oh, yeah, good question. A biofuel is liquid fuel derived from biomass. 
And biomass is just dried plant matter. So imagine taking wood chips or chopped up grass and converting it using uh, a bacteria into a liquid transportation fuel. And that becomes a biofuel. It can take the form of a, a gasoline drop-in product, or it can be a replacement for gasoline, diesel, or aviation fuels. So the biofuels that are available commercially today, what are they being used for? So there is first-generation biofuels available today to consumers. Most people don't recognize it, but the ethylene that they see in their gas pumps during the winter and particularly the ethanol blended gasoline is mostly derived from biofuels. And so that's between 10 and 15% drop in uh, fuel, uh, fuel weight basis. Um, those are first generation biofuels. They come mostly from starch and uh, out of corn kernels. But what we're working on are lignocellulosic second generation biofuels. Lignocellulosics are really comprised of three polymers, lignin, cellulose, and hemicellulose. And these are the components that make up this plant cell wall. Plants are rigid. You know, when you try to bend a plant, uh, particularly a woody plant, it's hard. That's because the cells are layered with cellulose, which is a glucose polymer, hemicellulose, which is a five carbon sugar polymer, and lignin, which is a phenolic polymer. And these intertwine into a network that in, envelops the plant cell. We're trying to use enzymes derived from bacteria to deconstruct those cell walls and release the sugars so that they can be fermented into fuel. So before diving into the technology that you're developing, uh, I'd love to ask you, why are biofuels important for us to focus on at this moment? Biofuels give us the opportunity to displace petroleum-based transportation fuels. Uh, oil or coal represents carbon that was fixed a long time ago. And that's ancient carbon that's been captured and held in the ground for a long period of time. Because we use internal combustion engines, that carbon is burned and emitted back into the atmosphere in the form of CO2. So by using biofuels, we can displace that petroleum and reduce the amount of carbon dioxide emissions in the transportation sector here in the US. So it's a means of um, reducing the amount of carbon through capture of growing biomass, poplar or switchgrass, or other forms of plant biomass, harvesting the above ground portion and converting that into fuel and leaving the perennial root systems intact in the soil so that that carbon remains fixed in the soil. So we both get a displacement effect from the conversion of biomass into fuel and a sequestration effect because of the carbon remaining in the soil in the perennial root systems. Now, you've already touched on this a bit, but could you say a little bit more about the total life cycle of CO2 emissions stemming from biofuels? Um, Another way of posing this question is, are these fuels net, net positive in terms of emissions or net negative? So first generation biofuels in the form of uh, ethanol that we use now in gasoline is um, CO2 neutral. It's not positive or negative because corn, it, um, first generation biofuels are produced from starch found in corn kernels. And corn is an annual crop that is planted and harvested annually. 
there's a, a net zero benefit from using biofuels. It has advantages in terms of reduction of pollutants. We're working on second generation lignocellulosic biofuels. And this is where perennial plants come into play. So we could think about our agricultural landscape and converting marginal agricultural land into these perennial systems of grasses and trees that sequester carbon in the soil and then are harvested once a year and allowed to regrow. And so you have a, a very positive impact on CO2 using lignocellulosics. You displace the petroleum, positive effect there. And then you have the sequestration of the carbon fixed in the root systems that remain intact over long periods of time. Can you walk us through the steps of biofuel production, starting from bioenergy crops and ending with usable fuels? Um, the process of creating biofuels in our center starts with growing improved plant materials, poplar and switchgrass. You establish those in a field much as you would any other agricultural crop, but we're targeting marginal agricultural land to avoid competition with food production. So this will go, we're, we're looking at areas in the Western Great Plains or abandoned agricultural land in the Southeast or the Northeast. Poplar and switchgrass would then be planted and grown over uh, multiple periods of time, harvested and brought into a conversion facility. In this conversion facility, there would be a bioreactor and the bioreactor would contain bacteria, a bacteria that's been engineered to recognize this biomass so that the plant material itself, although is difficult to deconstruct, that's a term called recalcitrance, it's recalcitrance. This bacteria has been programmed to recognize that and the plant cell walls have been modified to match the bacteria so that it easily deconstructs these polymers. So lignin is stripped away, then the hemicelluloses and celluloses are depolymerized, broken down into their basic components, which is glucose or five carbon sugars like fructose. The glucose is then fermented, you know, much the same way that we think about making um, ethanol for human consumption, fermentation takes place. But this is where the process differs. Instead of distilling that alcohol into a consumable product, we take the ethanol vapors right out of the bioreactor. And the ethanol vapors are passed across the catalytic bed. And that catalyst converts the ethanol into a hydrocarbon. And that hydrocarbon has properties similar to aviation fuel or diesel fuel. So it can be used as a replacement for petroleum-based aviation fuel. And so it's the combination of improved feedstocks, biological deconstruction and fermentation, and catalytic upgrading that leads to these second-generation biofuels. When we talk about the chemistry in this process, where, focus us on you know, where does the energy come from? I can talk in generalities in the sense that um, lignin is a high energy compound because it has um, quite a few carbons per unit weight relative to other biological materials. Cellul cellulose, interestingly enough, is the most abundant on the planet. 
There's more cellulose than there is any other polymer on the planet. And it contains energy captured in, in the molecules of glucose. Those molecules are comprised of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. That, that makes up the glucose. But for a hydrocarbon fuel, you need to remove all the oxygens. And so the, that's the purpose of the catalytic upgrading, is it scours out all the oxygens and just leaves the hydrocarbon, a high energy, energy dense uh, liquid fuel. And what qualifies as good feedstock? Why, why focus on plants like eucalyptus, switchgrass, and, and, and poplar, for example? So the US Department of Energy 20 years ago published a report that evaluated all possible sources of biomass, including agricultural residuals and wastes, forestry residuals, um, con construction materials, and dedicated energy crops. And um, that portfolio was the first indication that we have enough biomass. That publication was the first indication that we have enough biomass to actually displace transportation fuels of all of those sources, dedicated energy crops include things like poplar, switchgrass, eucalyptus, willow, miscanthus, energy cane. And these plant materials have many things in common. They're typically fast growing. They typically can grow on mat marginal agricultural land so they don't compete with food. And um, they have the benefit of most of them being perennials. And so we chose to work on poplar and switchgrass, not because the others were more or less suitable, but that the genetic systems in those two organisms allowed us to select for improved cell wall traits, which is where the biomass holds the energy um, in its cell walls, in its lignin, cellulose, and hemicellulose. So I'd love to talk a little bit about air travel and aviation fuel. I think it's often a topic that gets brought up in this conversation and people just end up throwing their hands up about it. But why is aviation fuel or jet fuel so difficult to produce alternatives to? I mean, isn't it just an engine? Does, it, does, it, does the fuel have to work in some kind of a different way? What makes it so difficult? What makes aviation fuel special? Well, they have very tight technical requirements that we all appreciate. If we decide to fly from LA to New York, we're in midair for five hours. We want the engines to function properly, of course. And that requirement dictates that aviation fuels have a series of parameters that determine its suitability. Things like flash point, freezing point, Aviation fuel in a jet engine also acts as the lubricant. In our engines, in our cars, we put in gasoline, but we also put in oil, and the oil lubricates the engines. But in jet, in jet engines, they act as the coolant, as the lubricant, and as the energy source. So the requirements are very tightly controlled and specified. It makes producing them from biomass difficult. Um, and we've developed a catalytic upgrading approach that allows us to create these hydrocarbons that have the same properties as jet fuel, olefins and aromatics, 
that are found inside this combination of chemicals known as jet fuel. And, and so once that happens, once we're able to produce a biofuel in the form of an aviation fuel, it has to be tested and certified. And we're in the early, early stages of that testing and that certification. And, and what about the enterprise of developing uh, jet fuel? How do, how do new fuels get certified? How do we sort of ensure that they are safe and you know, capable of, of, of working as a drop-in fuel? So there are multiple levels of certification. And the first level is tier zero or level zero, where you've created what you believe is a jet fuel, a, a biomass-based jet fuel. And we're producing, in this case, hundreds of, of liters, uh, uh, a small volume um, that then can be tested chemically. Does it have all the chemical properties? Does it behave under high temperature or low temperature? And that is before it even is placed in, into a jet engine. And from that point forward, we have to partner with organizations that do the certification. We can't certify it ourselves. So we partner with organizations like CAFI. Steve Zonka is the president of CAFI, which is an organization that helps um, promote sustainable aviation fuel and then links us to laboratories around the country that do the certification, all the way up to jet flight, not just jet engines, but jet flight testing uh, without passengers, of course. And that requires hundreds of gallons of fuel. So we're at the dozens of um, liters in volume at this point, but we have to scale that up, which means you need larger bioreactors. I talked a moment ago about bacteria inside a bioreactor and us pulling the alcohol vapors off that bioreactor and upgrading it. That, that is a two liter reactor. But in an industrial complex, you need a, a 500 liter or a 5,000 liter reactor. And so, of course, um, there are industrial complexes that have these, but they're not available within the center here. So we have to partner with these scale up or pilot facilities and pr provide them with the biomass so that they can produce enough liquid fuel in the form of a aviation fuel to test in tier two, three, and four. I'd love to sort of go a little bit further upstream in the biofuels production process. Um, can you describe how biomass feedstock is broken down via this special bacteria that you talked about earlier and, and turned into a fuel? Yeah, this process has to be tightly coordinated. Um, in addition to just the feedstock, which would be the poplar chips or the switchgrass straw, um, you have to have the right bacteria in a bioreactor. The bacteria we use is Clostridium thermocellum, which is a thermophilic anaerobic bacteria. So it lives at high temperature in the absence of oxygen. So the bioreactor has to be sealed and has to be capable of um, uh, generating enough heat that the clostridium deconstructs and ferments the biomass. In addition to that, 
we apply a process called co-treatment. And here you provide, let's say, poplar chips the size of a potato chip, uh, 500 pounds of those to this bioreactor. Um, in the presence of the bacteria, the biomass becomes softer. It, the bacteria overcomes the recalcitrance. You could let that process take place over seven days and ultimately the bacteria would digest and consume all the biomass and form alcohol. But we can accelerate that process by co-treatment. It's brief milling in the middle of the deconstruction process. So we can go from a seven-day process to a two-day process. There are three parameters associated with producing uh, liquid transportation fuels in a bioreactor. They're tighter rate and yield. And so you want to have tighter as high as possible, rate as fast as possible, and yield as high as possible. Tighter is just the amount of fuel that's contained in the bioreactor after deconstruction and after fermentation. So there's a negative inhibition or feedback loop that happens as bacteria produce more alcohol, um, they inhibit alcohol production. So we had to modify the bacteria to tolerate higher and higher concentrations of alcohol to get tighter high enough to be economically viable. Rate is the, the speed at which the deconstruction and fermentation process happens we've been able to reduce the fermentation times from seven days down to two days, which becomes economically um, feasible. And then yield is the amount of carbon you get into the form of fuel that was derived or delivered in the form of biomass. And so you want to achieve as high a yield as possible, 90% or more of the carbon going from biomass into fuel. And so those three parameters have dictated how we design the bioreactor and how we process the biomass. And so um, we want to have um, the biomass in a form that's easily deconstructed to get maximum yield. We want to have the rate as quick as possible. So we use this process called co-treatment, which is brief milling in the middle of deconstruction and fermentation. And then we modify the bacteria, the biological agent, to tolerate higher and higher concentrations of alcohol. And this drives us towards um, an economic point where we can compete with aviation fuel from petroleum-based sources. So touching on that point about competing with fossil fuels, what's the current price point of the technology you're developing in terms of dollars per gallon of aviation fuel? So to be competitive with petroleum-based fuels is a very complicated thing. It's dynamic. The price of oil goes up or down depending on what's happening in the world. And so um, to hit a specific competitive threshold varies from uh, month to month almost. But our, on the average, our target is to produce gasoline-like biofuels at $2 a gallon retail, $2.50 a gallon for aviation fuels. That seems pretty cheap for aviation fuel, doesn't it? The price of aviation fuels fluctuates greatly. And 
um, depending on demand and supply, of course. And to be competitive without um, externalities or government assistance, we think we need to hit as low a baseline cost as possible. Our initial estimates were about $6 a gallon. And so we've slowly begun to reduce that. We're somewhere around $4 a gallon now, and we think we can get it to $2.50 a gallon. What do you think it's gonna to take to get us from that $4 per gallon of aviation biofuel to the $2.50 number per gallon? There are many, many factors that affect the cost of those transportation fuel, particularly those derived from biomass. Um, the cost of the feedstock is about 50% of the cost of the fuel. And so anything you can do to reduce the cost of the feedstock helps. There, the biggest driver is yield. The tons per acre of biomass you can produce. Our target is 10 dry tons per acre per year productivity. And so that encompasses areas of uh, cold weather and hot weather, dry seasons and wet seasons, various soil types, various insects and diseases. And so the challenge is to create a robust, sustainable feedstock that can be deployed on 20 million acres of land, achieve try 10 dry tons per acre per year, and cost somewhere around $50 a ton to deliver to the mill. Once the biomass is delivered to the mill, and you want to process it as efficiently as possible. I've already talked about titer rate and yield. And so you want to maximize titer, reduce the um, time it takes to convert the biomass, and then increase the yield. So we're working to achieve those things simultaneously, um, matching the bacteria to the feedstock so that they're optimally connected that deconstruction happens as effectively and as efficiently as possible. And then in terms of catalytic upgrading, you want to be able to use a catalyst that is cost effective, that's affordable. Many, many catalysts use rare earth elements that are very expensive. They um, are not reusable in an, in an easy manner. And so we're, we've decided to go with a single stage catalytic upgrading using zeolite catalysts that don't contain rare earth elements. And we found the combination that does this very effectively. Um, now our challenge is to tune the product. We get an array of hydrocarbons from diesel to jet fuel in a mixture. And so we want to be able to tune the catalyst so that we can predictively produce just diesel fuel or just jet fuel. And that's, that's a, a, a challenge of chemistry to get the right combination of elements in the catalyst so that it's cost effective and affordable and predictively yields the right hydrocarbons. Dr. Tuscan, I'd love to turn to a paper that you shared with us, which is titled Robust Paths to Net Greenhouse Gas Mitigation and Negative Emissions Via Advanced Biofuels. Now, this paper contains a quote that says, the climate benefits of cellulosic biofuels have been challenged based on carbon debt, opportunity costs, and indirect land use change, prompting calls for withdrawing support for research and development. 
Can you talk to us about what those arguments are, as well as the reality of the state of biofuels? The debate has gone on, and there are three different elements to this debate. Um, uh, placed in different terms, opportunity cost is um, what a landowner does with their land. You could decide, I'm going to leave it fallow, and there's an opportunity cost that you could have grown corn or soybeans and gotten profit from it. So you've missed that opportunity. The same thing applies if you decide to grow biofuels, there's an opportunity cost of not producing corn or soybeans. And so the return on investment for biofuels has to compete with existing land use to return um, on the farmer's investment in that land. We can't compete with corn and soybeans. The return on investment to the landowner is so high. So we have to find opportunities where bioenergy could compete and provide a greater return on investment to the landowner. We've talked about optimizing land use in, in terms of opportunity cost. There's also the issue of competing with food production. So we target these marginal agricultural lands that I've talked about earlier. Then there's the argument that you see in the literature about net carbon impacts on atmospheric CO2. And many of those have focused on first-generation uh, first biofuels derived from starch and corn kernels. Those tend to be neutral. Um, so we have to come up with a system that's net positive in terms of carbon capture, carbon recycling, and um, carbon use in the form of fuel. And we've done that through the use of perennial, the deployment of perennial plants on the landscape. And I've mentioned that these root systems remain in the soil as a perennial carbon sink for many, many years and you continually harvest just the above ground portion. And so there's a net benefit there of advanced or second generation biofuels. So I touched on all three of the criticisms. Um, and then just would summarize by saying that um, our techno-economic analyses indicate that advanced generation biofuels from lignocellulosic feedstocks provide a net carbon benefit um, provide the right opportunities for landowners to get a return on investment and don't compete directly with displacing uh, food production. And that's because we're talking about targeting marginal land, is that right? We're targeting marginal agricultural lands. Um, there's about 420 million acres of agricultural land in the U.S. and we would target 20 million acres in the Midwest, but the Western Midwest uh, areas in western Kansas, western Nebraska, uh, South Dakota, North Dakota, which are not highly productive agricultural lands. Got it. And where would you say the opportunities are for deployment of capital, say for large investors who are interested in, long, in a longer term horizon? The capital investment in a biofuels facility is measurable. Um, it would take millions of dollars to create a 5,000 gallon a day um, refinery, biorefinery. Um, these are large, large facilities that uh, your average investor is, would not be capable of uh, making. 
it will take a combination of government insurance and capital investment um, to make this happen. It, it will not be feasible without large investments from both the private sector and from government. Great. Jerry, thank you so much for your insight into this topic and for taking the time to join us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah. That is it for this episode of the Climate Now podcast. You can check out our other interviews, watch our videos, and sign up for our newsletter on our website, climatenow.com. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at contact at climatenow or tweet at us at we are climate now. We hope you'll join us for our next conversation.